Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. I was like, Dad, what do you think? Should I get another job? And how can people do that? Defending these people. And my dad said, well, Jesus does that for you every day, and you know you're guilty. That's all he said. Before we get to that, we have to say, do we really know what police officers do? Before you can accuse somebody of racism, you got to know, well, what, what is their job? Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And coming up here very shortly, I have a great conversation with Dr. John Churchville. But before we get into that, I wanted to make sure that you know that you can become a Diakonasa Cops Calling patron. All you have to do is go to diakonasacc.podbean.com and click the Become a Patron button in the top right corner. You will then be able to see what appears to be a video of a homeless person but it's actually me, I promise. Explain the reasons and the goals behind the patron program. And for as little as $3 a month, you can partner with me to kick up the dust after the mission of this podcast. As a patron, you will also be entered into a prize drawing, uh, the first one of which is happening in just a couple months in July. And the winner of that drawing will get a set of handmade leather drink koozies. Yes, koozies, not cozies. I used to think it was drink cozies, but they actually are koozies. And these are made by none other than famous past guest and hopefully future guest again, Detective Gary Lowe. Check it out. Become a patron. Support the podcast in order to secure your chance at winning along with other exclusive perks just for my patrons. Speaking of perks, there are several brand new patrons who I want to give a shout out to and who are okay with me uh, giving a shout out uh, on the episode for them. They are M. Weaver. Jackie Stallweaver, and Tim. Tim, you know who you are. I appreciate all three of these um, brand new patrons and all the patrons that I have who did not wish to get a shout out. I appreciate you too. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Dr. John Churchville. My guest is currently the Criminal Justice Program Director at Lancaster Bible College. He holds a bachelor's degree in American history 
from Brown University and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. His experience includes being a prosecutor in uh, Philadelphia and then a criminal defense attorney in both Philadelphia and Lancaster. He is a friend and a brother in Christ that I have found is quick to listen and humble in all his interactions. I'd like to welcome Dr. and Professor John Churchville to the podcast. John, how are you? I'm good, Anthony. Thanks for uh, having me here. Absolutely. So right off the bat, this is a first on uh, this podcast. We we actually have a live audience of one. Tony Bruno is in the audience. Uh, he's an assistant professor and a uh, and a criminal justice program staff at Lancaster Bible College. And you guys are kind of like the dynamic duo there. I appreciate both of you. So Tony, give a give a loud shout. See if you can get on the mic here. There you go. I think that'll be on. Awesome. So um, I'm glad he he uh, he came along and uh, is here as we record this episode. And uh, hopefully he's encouraged by it and maybe learned something. Maybe I could actually t- teach a professor something. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, so right before we got on, I found out you were you were getting a little leery about the mic. But I found out that you used to actually, you were, you were actually in a band. Uh, what kind of band was this? Uh, jazz, okay. R&B. Um, in Philly, we had a radio station called 106.1. And they would, they would do covers of like, it's just think of like soft jazz. You know? okay. We did a lot of covers, nothing original. It was actually guys in my church in Philly. They had all been professional musicians. I was not, uh, but I grew up, my grandmother taught me how to play the piano. My uncles are professional musicians. My mom was a pianist who got a music scholarship to Westchester, and my dad was a professional musician. So it's in my genes. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is in your genes. So I, uh, strangely enough, we started playing in the band when I was in law school, which was counterintuitive, uh, but it was a nice stress reliever. It was something fun to do. And that was, I would say, that was my backup career. If I had not passed the bar exam, uh, I would have tried to make a living uh, playing music. Okay. Now, did you play an instrument or just sing? A piano? Piano, keyboard. Yep. Okay. I was right. a keyboard guy. And uh, we had a couple of ladies who did most of the, the leads. Like, I would do a couple duets and background. So I wasn't, I wasn't the main singer, but just being on the microphone again, it brought back memories. I said, wait a minute, I've had to do this before. Right. Now, what was the name of the band? Did your <laughs> band have a name? Brothers Keeper. Oh, I like it. I like it. And these were all guys from your church, believers. And mm-hmm. where would you play? Um, <laughs> a lot of church functions. You know, when the church would do a, a conference, um, you know, or like a special neighbor day, They'd have a concert, and we'd be so we were kind of like the church band, sort okay. of. I mean, we didn't play every Sunday for the worship, but special days we would. Okay. Um, when we did East Coast conferences, we would play there, and we we found somebody in a part of Philadelphia that was trying to open up a little club. So we did a couple of really small, quiet, uh, so very very local and primarily church event. Okay. Did you ever release an album or anything? No. Again, some of the independent members uh, did this and their other stuff, but never as, as okay. our group. Okay. Cool. I am very 
I'm not musical at all, at all. In fact, I, I it's not uncommon for me to drive in complete silence, and I just I'm just not a musical person. Now my wife is, Lauren is, mm. but um, I think she sometimes wishes I was a little more musical. But yeah, it's not not my not, never really been my thing. It's like you probably tell your kids, you get what you get, you don't get upset. <laughs> yep, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, before we dive into your history a little bit. Um, and how you grew up and, and everything like that and where you grew up. You, when, when did you come to Lancaster? When did you move to Lancaster and start um, practicing law in Lancaster? May 2005. Okay. All right. I, I could not remember for the life of me. Now, do you remember? I was trying to remember the first time we met. Um, obviously it was in, it was either at a hearing mm-hmm. or at a trial yeah. or, um, but I didn't, I couldn't remember. Do you remember the exact like case we first met on? Yeah, it was a young, uh, a young man from the city and you were pulling him over for a noise ordinance, I think. Oh, so that, so that That's trial, yeah. that was the very first yep. thing we met on. Yep. I'd never seen you before. You'd never seen me and, uh, yeah. And that was probably 2008, because when I first came, I was working for Midpin Legal Services for a year, and then I worked in a private firm. So I didn't start with the PD until, I think it was 2008. And that was, I think this was my first trial. You were either okay. my first or my second. So we would have met sometime in 2008, 2009. And just to clarify, PD, Public Defender's Public Office. Defender. So when you yep. first came, you were, you were working... Uh, Criminal defense law was it? Criminal defense law privately? I, no, it was it was civil stuff. Um, I was did a lot of the criminal in Philly, but I came here to get away from the criminal law. And here I was like, let me help people with their housing, with unemployment benefits, getting Social Security, landlord tenant stuff. Like I came to leave criminal, uh, and then my wife was a teacher, and we were starting our family at that point. And I said, oh, I'm going to need a little bit more than I was making at legal aid. Okay. So that's, yeah, we came here to get away from criminal law. Okay. So when you say you came from Philly to get away from criminal, criminal law, why, why was that? Uh, like any career, it's, you, you take your work home with you. I remember, uh, basically, I was, my brain was burnt out. Okay. Um, being a prosecutor, and I guess we'll talk more about this later, You'd have cases, you'd have 50 cases on your docket at preliminary hearings, and you didn't come back. You did them the whole day. Like, you'd get there at 7 in the morning, and the court would open up at 8 o'clock. Judge would take a lunch break. You'd be there till 5 o'clock all day long. And then you'd go home, and you'd mark up your files, and you'd get ready for the next day. So you were exhausted. Um, And then being a defense attorney... When you're a prosecutor, you're trying to make sure you're doing right by your victims. So you're calling people, you're trying to explain what's going on, you're trying to keep up with people. Defense attorney, now you're keeping up with your clients and their families. Either way, you're dealing with people who need answers, and they, you're calling them back. And if you care about people, it's exhausting if you're not just punching the ticket So for all of us. So I was really feeling burnt out because my cases I would take home with me and whether you win a case, whether you lose a case, you're, you're carrying all this emotional stuff. And so 
we liked Lancaster and always felt better. We'd come out, my wife and I would come out for weekend trips and we said, the air is cleaner out here. So moving to Lancaster was to clear my head and to, to kind of get out of that burnout. Mode. Okay. So you, you didn't have any family in Lancaster or anything like that. It was just an area you liked to visit mm-hmm. and you decided to, to make that move. That's exactly right. Okay. Now, did you grow up in Philadelphia? Yep. That's my home. That's where my dad and his family's from. And my mother's side of family's from Harrisburg. So it helped to move here because we had a few friends and I do have my uncles and my grandmother was still alive at the time, just 40 minutes away. So, okay. Um, and how long did you practice law in Philadelphia um, before you moved to Lancaster? 10 years. Okay. And how many of those years were as a assistant district attorney for the prosecutor's office? And how many years Mm -hmm. were you a defense attorney? Prosecutor, two and a half years. And then the remainder of the time, because I, if I left the prosecutor's office, January of 98, I believe. Okay. And then started public defender's office April of 98. Okay. So whole time just doing criminal work. Okay. All right. And uh, we started we started getting into it um, the first time we met, and we got off on this rabbit trail here. I, I wasn't sure if that trial was the first time we met or not, but it was kind of memorable for both of us. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, like, can you, can you kind of break down that, that trial and, and what happened? It was a disorderly conduct charge. You know, like, I remember at the preliminary hearing, I remember the district attorney on the case was like, ah, just plead for a fine. And the client was like, no, I'm fighting this. I'm going all the way to Supreme Court, like, kind of like that. I said, okay. Um, and if I remember correctly, we, I think we had a hearing, if I remember correctly. And he really, really wanted a trial. He felt as if it was unjust. And so I had never had a disorderly conduct trial before. I had done serious cases. I had done felonies. But people just usually pled guilty or took a fine. So I was like, all right, I'm looking at the statute. And it says, um, making unreasonable noise. And I just remember, well, that was a charge, and uh, the young man happened to be Latino, and I remember walking into the courthouse, and remember, I'm coming from Philadelphia, where the demographics are very different. So you walk into the courthouse in Philly, you might have a black judge, you have multiracial jury, you have stenographers, you have Asians. So Lancaster, my recollection is he would have been the brown face in the room, I would have been the black face in the room. So honestly, it made me insecure. And I was trying to overcome the fear of how to handle this. For me, it was like a cultural shift, because I was in a new environment. So I remember all these things. And so I thought, okay, elephant in the room is race. So let me get that out the way. So I thought I was doing a good thing. So if I recall correctly, I said, ladies and gentlemen, this case is not about race. Uh, And then I told a story about the dirty little secret that some people are treated differently in some parts of the city that others are. And um, I remember one of the jurors was sort of nodding her head, and I was saying, you know, 
if you guys think that's fair, then that's totally fine. Find him guilty. I remember saying that. Um, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. Like, okay, I got a good start. And then I remember the look on your face. <laughs> and I remembered your, your brother officer was, uh, and I remember the prosecutor. I just remember everybody being furious. And I'm sitting there like, what, what just happened? And then I remember going to talk to the judge in the back. And the judge said, look at you trying to make the jury feel sorry. I could see your theory. You're trying to say this mean white cops beating up on the young Latino kid. And I was like, whoa. And it was like a Friday afternoon is what I remember. And it just, I felt like I walked into something that I had not anticipated. So that was, yeah, that was our first introduction. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I remember, I honestly, I don't remember much of your opening. Um, except the part where you said, um, you said, if, let's face it, if my client was a, a Franklin and Marshall student, I did say that he yeah. would be treated differently than yes. my client who, um, and you didn't, you didn't say who was Latino or Spanish, but you said, uh, who looks different and has a ponytail or something like that. So then I, um, I was like, okay, uh, well, I've never met this defense attorney, but all right, we're going to go, we're going to go this route. So, I, you know, then I took the stand and um, the thing that like bothered me about it was on the stand that I, I wasn't, you didn't ask me any questions that would allow me to like defend myself. And um, so I felt like this thing was kind of thrown out there to the jury mm -hmm. and then I wasn't allowed to defend myself. So yeah, we, uh, me and the uh, prosecutor, the assistant district attorney at that point, uh, we were not very kind to you at the break and uh, uh, yeah, not very kind to would put it lightly. We pretty much like uh, we're, we're kind of nasty to you. And, and, um, and then after that, I think the thing that kind of stuck out to me about that whole thing was from then on out, every time I came across you, you didn't have this attitude against me. It was more like, Hey, I, I, I'm, think I maybe messed up in my portrayal to the jury. I could have worded things differently or, or I, my perception of what happened is different than yours. And, and so, um, you would, you would, uh, you, you tried to talk to me like over the next several years, like at court and stuff. And I, I wasn't, I really didn't have too much time for you, but I don't really remember what, what happened or what kind of warmed us up to each other. But you just, you kind of kept at it and you had a very uh, humble attitude about what had happened. And um, you were, you were, you never mistreated me or anything like that. And so, yeah, over the years, we kind of gained this mutual respect for each other. And, uh, and then um, you reached out to me, you know, with your role at Lancaster Bible College and, and was like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm taking over this role, Lancaster Bible College, would you be willing to come in and talk each semester to one of my classes? And, um, and so, yeah, we just kind of started having more and more conversations. And then I kind of started leaning on you a little more, especially during the last like several years and mm -hmm. in 2020 mm -hmm. over the George Floyd incident. I remember after the George Floyd incident, I actually hit you up I was like, hey, can I just grab a cup of coffee with you and, and talk to you about this? Because I knew that um, you would possibly be able to provide 
a bit of a different perspective. And then I could also bounce stuff off of you with, with where I was at and everything. And that was, that was helpful. Um, and, uh, and actually one of the things I remember about the George Floyd conversation that we had that kind of struck me, the thing that stuck out to me most about that conversation is you said, when you saw the George Floyd incident happen, um, you, you actually cry. It made you cry. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why I, I was so, I, that just really struck me. Um, can you explain why, why that was like, why, why that made you cry? Oh yeah. It was, um, Memorial day weekend. And I think I had seen a sermon that Sunday, um, and a pastor was talking about Ahmad Arbery, the jogger down in Georgia, right. him dying. And then I don't think we were talking about Brianna Taylor yet. I think that came the next week. But then Monday morning, the news was showing um, the bird watching lady in New York. And then there was like okay. a black gentleman. Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yep. Less, less serious. But um, there was the, you know, you see her saying, I'm going to call the police and tell them a black man's threatening me. And we're like, what? And then George Floyd came, and that was just a shock because typically we might hear stories or you see a little bit of video footage, but literally America got to watch him die on camera. Right. And I think those three back-to-back, processing all that emotion, like I remember... I think my sister might have said something to me about the, the bird watching thing. And I'm like looking at that. And then there was like a news flash. And then someone else was like, I can't even watch this right now. And I'm like, what's going on? So as I'm processing all these emotions, um, yeah, so I hurt for his family, for his kids, like, because that's, people are going to see that, like to watch. And that, I thought about what would that be like? And we're not even getting to guilt or innocence or, or who did what, but just to watch your, your family member die like that. That so I think it was all those emotions together, and as we'll talk more about a little bit later. Looking back now, there was also the um, I guess I'll say the word trauma, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, and a friend said to me later, "Oh, it's almost like PTSD because I'm an absorber because I do a lot of listening. Um, I had not had a chance to process." Um, other instances before that. Does that make sense? Because right. I'm always in like my teacher mode. Right. I'm thinking, okay, well, what happened here? So there was all this stuffed um, hurt from people dying. And again, regardless of who was right or who was wrong, people died. And I was not processing it. And George Floyd was sort of the, 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 the straw, if that answers the question. Okay. Now, do you think you would have had the same reaction had it been a white person? Yes, and I can say that because one, I'm a crier, <laughs> and I I I cry at movies. Um, no, I can say that without even hesitation. Um, there is a distinction. I could say it without hesitation um, because I cry often. Um, I cried a couple of weeks ago when there's a video of a, I think a 73 year old white woman who the police had kind of snapped her arm and she had whatever it was Alzheimer's or something. Okay. Um, like that made me cry. So I'm just a crier. Just I'm, I'm an empath. It's, it's people. So 
the tears were different because I wasn't feeling trauma um, or, or repressed trauma. Okay. And, and I can explain that more. I'm not trying to be psychobabble. This is just, I, was, I started to see it later. Trauma, for me to define it, simply means um, repressed hurt that I hadn't dealt with. That's what I mean. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that something bad happened to me. I'm just saying when you absorb, probably you relate to this as, as somebody in your career, you're absorbing a lot of other people's pain. Right. Like that's what you're doing for a living. Yeah. And at some point it's got to go somewhere. And so yeah. I realized in my teaching profession, I'm absorbing a lot, um, but I wasn't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to yell at my kids about it. I'm not going to argue, but I had to do something with all that grieving I was doing that I hadn't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, the trauma, are you talking about all the way back, like all the stuff you took on as a defense attorney and as a prosecutor and mm. constantly listen to people's problems and hearing terrible stories and, and then dealing with students and their, what they're going through, like all of it? No, I wouldn't go that far. Cause I, I was able to get a lot of processing just being in Lancaster. But I think um, we've talked a lot about race and policing for at least the last five years. Right. And so because I'm, a lot of it is academic and I'm teaching and I'm, um, uh, so I think for me, well, my son walked by then too, my older son who I talk about. So I was feeling for him as, as we've talked about. And when I put Ahmaud Arbery and I'm thinking, what if that were my son out jogging? Or what if my son's at the park and somebody threatens to call the police? Or what if he gets scared and what if he resists and what if he gets choked? So I think that's what I mean. I was, I was processing those three incidents together and I was thinking about my son and the, the incidents that had happened before that that I probably hadn't really processed. Um, feeling helpless as a parent. Um, feeling... Uh, and I think other people have said it better than me. A lot of my, I had friends call me from Philadelphia and other places. And this was pretty consistent, especially among my black male friends. They said, I can't even get up. I can't even go to work today. So it was just sort of this shock um, that I was not in touch with until other people put words to it. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's called collective grieving, I think people call it. So okay. a lot of mine was personal, but I was clearly connecting to there was a sense of helplessness a sense of powerlessness a sense of pain and overwhelming not just for mr floyd i i didn't know him you know his family but thinking about my son as you and i've talked about so am i helping to answer the question yeah yeah no i think i think what's interesting to me about conversations like this and again you know i don't want to overgeneralize but there seems to be more of a community feel among black people than white people. Would you agree with that or not agree with that? Hmm. Um, I would just nuance that and say, I would, you would have to break down. Like um, my friends who are Italian have a strong feel in the Italian community. Okay. So it wouldn't be the same with Germans or my friends who are Russian, you know, or friends who are Jewish. So I think there are, cultural enclaves in the larger white community where people have those connections. Okay. Yeah. 
I because I, I think what I'm getting at is is what's what's always interesting to me in these. Like if I saw a like if George Floyd was white mm-hmm. and I saw that happen, and and I've said this before on episodes right. when I saw a George Floyd incident, I was pretty disgusted by it, and and even to my own, you know. I fe- I think I even drew conclusions too fast when I saw that incident because it was so you know it 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 was it was it was hard to watch it's just a terrible thing thing to watch and as a police officer watching it I just couldn't um there was no way just watching the video as it was shown initially on the news and not seeing any context before or after I just there was no way for me to be able to say that was a justified use of force. And I would still say, mm-hmm. you know, definitely there was something going on there uh, with Officer Chauvin, um, whether he was just poorly trained, whether he was completely distracted, whether he's just a terrible person, or maybe he he was a racist. And we talked about this. Like, I just, I wasn't willing to say this was a racial act. Right. And and you've you've agreed with me on that that it very well could be, but there was nothing that we've seen so far that had proved that. But um it's just what when when that happened, I saw like I remember like Lauren uh had watched something, it was like a, a sit down. I, I don't even remember I don't want to say the name of the pastor because I'm not even sure mm-hmm. I have the right pastor's name. So, but it was a sit down with a pastor and and a bunch of other people, and and there was a uh, a black woman on this panel, and they were talking about the George Floyd incident. These are believers, and she made the comment that I am George Floyd, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and both Lauren and I were like, "No, you're not. You are a a daughter of God. As a believer, you are a co heir with Christ. You are you are not." George Floyd. And so when you when you mentioned to me that the George Floyd incident like you saw it it made you cry it was just a little foreign to me because I feel like if George Floyd was a white dude I would have been like okay that's terrible but it wouldn't have had that mm. effect on me. Right. And and um yeah I just didn't know like I feel like there's a difference between black culture and white culture where white people we just to be completely honest we just don't care about each other as much. <laughs> We don't. We don't. Like I see, I see a white guy, you know, getting their butt kicked by a police officer. I'm like, well, guess you shouldn't have been an idiot. You know, is there anything to that? Do you think? Well, the collective memory, and and we'll probably get to this later in some questions, but there, there is, there is a that powerlessness I talked about. Um, that is something that has been part of the black community for at least 200 years. I'm, I'm not going to go to slavery. I'm just saying 200 years. Um, and I say that because we have records from the black population in Boston and New York saying some of the same things, which is really interesting. Not talking about slavery. You're talking about free blacks in the North, and they're talking about the same powerlessness. Why are you treating our children this way? Why can't we come home safe? So that has been passed down. So part of what you're saying is just that sort of shared uh, experience. Um, even if it was not individuals, it's coming from your dad and your cousin and your grandmother and your, your lore. That, um, and that probably is different than the larger white community. Again, I think there are enclaves. Um, again, I think probably 
I'm going to assume that a lot of the Jewish community feels that collective memory because they're talking about thousands of years of kind of having to stick together and things that have been done to them. So they probably have, I'm assuming, a pretty strong affinity. That's the best analogy I can make. Does okay. That- yeah. Yeah. It's just it, it's just an interesting. I'm I'm always it it always strikes me that there's this feeling like that is me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when we see one of these incidents involving yep. the police and the right. black community, that that yes. is me. And yep. and I'm always like, no, it's right. not you. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's this person and and you know, in in my opinion, it's I think you're hard pressed to show um level of force from the, from the police on the black community that isn't engaged in criminal activity. I don't know if you disagree with me on that or not, but all these videos that we see coming across our screens, generally speaking, the people that are engaged in those things are engaged in breaking the law and and thus brought them in contact with uh, the police. So I, I, yeah, I I would say it actually like usually bothers me when Mm -hmm. I see Christian, um, you know, believers say, I, I am that person. I'm like, well, no, you're, you're not right. that person. You, you are a co-heir with Christ. You're a mm-hmm. child of God. If you engage in a certain lifestyle, you might have certain, you know, things happen to you that may be similar to that. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's a interesting. No, that's no, it's it's a great observation, and it's good to have these conversations because. Again, we'll talk later on, but one one of the main issues that I've seen when we talk about racial um, communication, justice, it's even what you're saying, very often um, whites and blacks are not aware of each other's history. And so there's going to be these questions, um, like, why is that happening? And it's, um, yeah, I could say, I, I remember the NFL put out a, a video, and like all the, when Patrick Mahomes did it, like, at that point, the NFL was like, this is our golden boy. And obviously, Patrick Mahomes is biracial, you know. Um, but he said, I am George Floyd. And that kind of changed, if you remember, the NFL at that point started to be a lot more like, okay, we're going to, we got to do something about social justice. Um, all the NFL players, when they said, I'm George Floyd, you know, I cried at that. That moved me. Um, people, if it helps, people are not saying, I'm George Floyd in the sense that I'm identifying with somebody who had lived a criminal lifestyle. What people are saying is that could be me. That's the connection. That's, okay. that's the level of fear. Um, there was a hearing that summer by the Senate, and there is a black pastor from Philadelphia who's on the board of trustees, like the corporation at LBC, and he went down to testify, and Lindsey Graham was, was asking. He said... Tell the truth. Are black men really that afraid of the cops? And he said, yes. And this is a Christian pastor. He said, when I'm driving down the street, I'm terrified. And Senator Graham didn't believe him. And he said, are you serious? He said, is that really everybody? And he said, yes. And then Lindsey Graham said, uh, uh, the black Republican Senator, Tim Scott, he said, you know, Tim has been telling me that for years, but I just couldn't get my head around it because... Lindsey Graham's world, that was not his life growing up being afraid of police. So it was hard for him to hear one person. Tim Scott is like, oh, that's just Tim being. But when he heard this other pastor, and he kept hearing other people saying, 
You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to, um, you don't have to accept it, but can you at least listen? This is how we're feeling. And I'm, I appreciate that Senator Graham was able to say, okay, wow, there's something here because everyone's saying the same thing. Um, so that's what I'm talking about. That sort of collective consciousness. That's, that's what people mean when they say I'm George Floyd. It's, um, and I've heard Candace, what's her last name? Owens. I, you know, she makes a lot of good points. And she had a thing where she said she was frustrated because she says, out of all the cultures in the world, why do the black community sort of make martyrs out of bad guys? That was. Yeah, yes, I, I've heard that from her too. And I, I, I hear what she's saying, and I kind of went, I think she's missing it. People are not arguing that he was a saint. Um, people were not arguing that he hadn't done anything wrong. What people were, the, the pain came from that could have been me. And again, it's okay if people say, no, 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 that wouldn't have happened to you. But just to understand for the black community, that's what we believe. That could be my son. That could be my nephew. That could be my uncle. Whether he did something, whether he didn't, whether he did something small or he did something big. And so that powerlessness and that hopelessness. And then we do think, hmm, my white friend told me about when he did X or Y, or when he mouthed off at the cop, and he didn't die, or when he had drugs, and he didn't die. And again, I'm just, people only know their experiences, so we can get into more of that later, but that's, that's what people are feeling, where they're crying at George Floyd, and they're saying, that could be me. It's a little more nuanced than Candace Owens is making it, which is, why are you supporting a criminal? Like, that, that was not even part of the conversation. Yeah. Well, I think it was part of the conversation for some people. Okay, I that's mean, fair. The, I'm sorry. I know, overstated. Yes. I mean, they, there was definitely a push that, um, you know, when, when that first happened, there was a push that he was, you know, uh, Getting walking the street in the narrow, yeah, sure. you know, okay. had his life back together. Yeah. Um, wasn't there something, too, that he was friends with someone in the NBA or, mm-hmm. I forget, there was like this, sure. there was this big push in the mm-hmm. press that he was like this great guy. Um, and again, all that to say that just because he wasn't a great guy, that he deserved to die. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess like, so you, you had mentioned that, you know, this feeling among males in the black community. Um, and by the way, I, I really appreciate you sitting down and talking to me about this because we, we've had conversations like this and it, it's, I think I think they're important conversations to have without delving into screaming matches with each other. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> Which help is anybody. Pointless. No. Yeah. Um, but what would you say to those people in the black community that do not would not say that would like black males in the black community that would say no, I do not drive around because I've heard other you know black males say. I'm not afraid to drive around. Like sure. as long as I'm following yep. the law yep. and doing what I should yep. be doing, I'm not. A, yep. So how do you. That's fair. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's good. Thank you for helping me. I have to nuance. I can never say a hundred percent of people because you know, the black community is not monolithic. Are you talking about Barack Obama? Are you talking about biracial people? Are you talking about people who are immigrants from Nigeria or from Kenya? Um, are you talking about people from poor communities or people in wealthy communities? So yeah, there's a wide range. Um, so I will say the majority, I will say, and whether the majority is 60%, 75%, 80%, um, I will say the majority of black males 
feel that fear because it's either personal, because of something that happened before, or to a friend or a family member or something they heard from up. So there's just, that's just been passed down historically. Um, and unfortunately, it's not just history, it's also, as I said, real life experience. Um, and okay, so what would I say to people have legitimate different life experiences? And so I'm not going to make somebody try to argue, you are too afraid of the cops. <laughs> like, I'm, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, I will say personally, I have never been threatened by a policeman, like with a gun in my face, or um, I've never been physically abused. I've never been, uh, I've never been pulled over that I suspected racial profile or something like that. As I told you, that the six or seven times I got pulled over, I was speeding or I ran a stop sign, and actually the police were nice to me because you know I was a prosecutor in Philadelphia, <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so I can say I'm someone who has not had negative experiences, but as I've shared with you, I'm still terrified for my son. Okay. So you see, so I'm part of that collective consciousness, even though my personal experiences have not been negative. Yeah. See, that, that kind of surprises me that you would still have that level of fear for your son when your, your personal experiences mm -hmm. have not been negative. And I've, I've also heard... Um, you know, members of the black community say, you know, we need to have this talk with our yep. our sons. Yep. And I, I'm always like, I'm going to have the same talks right. with my yep. kids. Like, yep. listen, if you're stopped by the police, yep. follow directions, mm -hmm. keep your hands on the steering wheel, don't be a jerk, mm -hmm. don't talk back, yep. do what they tell you to do. Yep. If you have a, if, if you feel that you're being mistreated, as long as they're not doing anything immoral or illegal and you just feel like you're being mistreated um then you know we will go and and file a, a, mm -hmm. a complaint there's mm -hmm. a there's a respectful way to go about right. it right um so yeah I, i'm just kind of surprised that yep your your personal experience hasn't been like that but there's still that level of fear uh for for your kids and, and maybe some of that's just parental too i guess yep. you know just well it's parental and um well, there's four talks we have in America, right? There's the general one you're talking that most parents have with their kids. Respect the police. You're right. That's across color lines, across socioeconomics. There's a talk that police officers have, my understanding is, the first day at the academy. Be careful. Get home safe. A simple car stop could be deadly. That's my understanding from my friends in law enforcement. There's a talk that everyone who has daughters has around the age of 12 or 13 doesn't mean that we hate all men. It doesn't mean all men aren't safe. But I think we'd agree we're negligent as parents if we don't have a specific talk with our daughters. And then there's that talk you're saying. In the black community, parts of it are similar and overlap with these other talks, but it's most similar to the, I think it's almost now just to the police officer talk. Are most police officers going to die in the line of duty by weapons? No. But is it a legitimate fear I think you'd probably say yes. Yeah. So it's not really, I hear people sometimes going, oh, if you look at the statistics, there's only this many people dying a year. Um, in 2015, there were 36 police officers who were killed in the line of duty by guns. And as I'm sure you know, other times it's from car chases um, or unfortunately suicide. In 2015, there were 36 unarmed black males killed by police. 
Now, it's not an exact match because there's a lot more black males in America than there are police, but it wouldn't be fair to either group to say, what are you police officers so scared of? You're almost never going to die. What are black men so scared of? You're almost never going to die. I think you'd agree that's not the point. It's the potential and the fear. So the same way police officers, understandably, are fearful because of that, agree or not, we have to at least go, okay, I can understand historically why black males would have that same fear. Right. You're never going to win an argument with statistics. It doesn't take away people's fear. I'm sure your wife was never... If somebody said to her, oh, uh, uh, Mrs. Weaver, your husband has a 0.001%, that's not going to help her, right? Because she loves you. Right. If that helps an analogy. So, no, every single black person in America is not walking around terrified. But there is a a genuine history over the last 200 years that has brought about that fear. And in some communities, I want to be fair, it's not every community. Um, For example... I feel like the police where I live in Manheim Township are very appropriate. I've never heard anything inappropriate, never heard anything from my neighbors. But that's not true from areas when I lived in Philadelphia or from things I've seen and heard in Baltimore. So it's a community by community thing. Right. But because so much of Philadelphia is black community, so much of Baltimore and people have family there, even those of us in Manheim Township are going to, we're going to take some of that into that collective consciousness. Yeah. But, um, but what are your and thoughts? Because I just a fair, well, did a lot I, of talking. I think it. when you when you break down, you were talking about those stats in 2015. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the one, my one, like rebuttal to that would be um, that. Okay, you you roughly 35 police officers or 36 police officers killed in 2015. Uh, 36 unarmed black men killed uh, by the police in 2015. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't. I'm not. I don't know all the stats for 2015, but this. I always like to do case by case uh, basis on those 35 or 36 right. Uh, right. black males that were killed by the police, and what does unarmed mean? I mean, right. Washington Post has been very liberal with sure. what un- unarmed is. Um, you know that just because someone's unarmed doesn't mean the police aren't justified in. Mm-hmm. And shooting them and right. and um, stopping that threat. Also, in the same respect, that police officers are engaged in a sworn duty. They they are engaged in enforcing the law. Um, those those males again. I think anyone would be hard pressed. Those males in 2015 that were killed by the police. I think anyone would be hard pressed proving to me that they were literally doing nothing wrong when those incidents happen um so i think that would be one thing Mm -hmm. i I would say in response to that oh yeah it's not a perfect analogy at all but i do i do you know it does make sense to me that the chances of me as a police officer dying by gunfire are pretty slim just as the chances of a black male dying by gunfire are pretty slim um that I, I get the analogy you're trying to make. Now I would I would argue that the chances of a black male being killed by gunfire at the hands of people in his own community are much higher than those of the police. And yet there seems to be this sure. like push of fear against the yep. police. Yep. Nope. That's and I'm glad you said that. That's um 
Were you about to say something else? No. Yeah, the and, and thank you for understanding. The analogy is never going to be perfect. I'm, I'm trying to loop back to the, if our underlying question is, where is the fear coming from? Gotcha. I'm saying beyond sort of, and again, we're, I think we're agreeing, probably common ground is, okay, the, the statistics, most police officers are safe. <laughs> most black men are safe from, from each other, Correct. right? Um, but there's legitimate fear, and obviously it's not perfect because there are black cops and multiracial cops. It's not like all white cops and all black men, right? So um, I was just trying to give, I found that people can hear a little bit better when we have sort of, sort of like fighting with your wife, right? Common ground. <laughs> <laughs> we see things one way, you see stuff. And so I have found, um, when you said that about the talk, I shared that analogy with one of my students and that helped my student because he was getting really angry. And he was like, what do you mean the talk? My dad had a talk with me. And I said, yeah, I'm not mad. Yes, that that's a legitimate talk. I said, the added thing that the black families have are not just respect the cops. The, the black family has a conversation that's laced with fear because if you don't, you could die. And we can say, oh, that's too much. And, and we can argue that, oh, you know, but I'm just saying, I'm just being honest with you that that's probably the extra part. And that's why I looped in. Um, my understanding from my friends in law enforcement is that's a similar talk that they get. If you're not on your game, if you're not, you know, vigilant, you could end up dead. Um, I don't think the trainers at the police academies are, are trying to stir up things. It's because right. they love people and they're trying to... So it's, I'm yeah. just trying to find common ground for where the fears may come from, yeah. even though the analogy doesn't work perfectly. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and I, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I'll go back to your other one. Um, yeah, that's very... That's, so again, I, I'm never afraid to deal with facts. Yes, Um most white people die at the hands of other white people. <laughs> Most black people die at the hands of other black people. Most Chinese people die at the hands of other Chinese. Most Hmong people and Samoans, like that's not that's not unique, and that's that's the demographics of our country. Most of us don't live in New York City or very diverse places. Most of us live um, generally in America in our twenty thousand cities. We typically live around people who generally look like us, and because so much of our crime is domestic violence or people who know us, yeah, we're likely to be killed by somebody that looks like us. So that's, yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that. Um, here is where somebody made this analogy that helped me. Um, America, we are very afraid of terrorists, like international terrorists. We will do whatever it takes. And if I said to um, a young woman or a young man, oh, the odds of you being killed by a radical Muslim from Chechnya are dot, 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 especially since 9-11. Like, they're, we'd agree they're infinitesimal, but that's not going to take away her fear. And if I said to her, what do you worry about that possible terrorist for? You're much more likely to die at the hands of your boyfriend or your dad or another white male. She'd probably go, apples and oranges. Both can be true. Yes. She's more likely to die by violence at the hands of another white person, the same way most black people are more likely to die at the hands of another black person. But I don't think it delegitimizes that young woman's fear of a possible terror attack. Right. And in the same way, I don't think it delegitimizes the black community's fear in some communities um, where they don't have good relationship with the police. Again, don't have a problem in Manhattan Township. <laughs> we have a great police department. But in some communities... 
the black community does not have a good relationship with the police. So that same fear can be there. And I don't think one cancels out the other or denies the other. Does right. That, does that help as an yeah, analogy? I, yeah. And, and I would, I would never say that, you know, it, when I have these conversations with, with uh, people that I, I ever want to uh, come across like, well, your fear is silly. You shouldn't have that fear. I do think, you know, and, and again, this is my personal mm-hmm. opinion mm-hmm. based on 20 years of experience in law enforcement and, and, and working in a uh, primarily Latino and, and black community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that um, it was an unfounded fear mm. unless you were engaged in criminal activity. Um, and then that fear, again, uh, should be felt because that's what Romans 13 teaches right. us. Right. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, it's, 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 it's something that it's hard for me to wrap mm-hmm. my mind mm-hmm. around because mm-hmm. when I see all these videos, when I see right. police videos of use of force and things of that nature, I'm always I'm, maybe I'm too clinical, uh, or maybe I'm just a jerk. I don't know. But when I watch them, I'm just looking at was was there a level of resistance by the suspect, right? And was the level of force used by the officer reasonable and necessary under uh, most departments' policies and what the courts have have said? Mm-hmm. And most of the time, when I watch these videos, I'm I'm not seeing a a uh, illegal or right. excessive use of force. It may mm-hmm. not be pretty. It may right. not be, you know, uh, polite. Um, and in the case of George Floyd, you know, and I've said on earlier episodes that I do believe that it reached the level of being illegal. And he, after a he, certain point, he mm-hmm. should have been um, charged. Now, you know, I, I don't know that he was in my personal opinion guilty of of second or third degree murder definitely probably manslaughter i think i think from what i understand they proved their case with that but again i'm not going to assign motives to that jury i that jury heard all the evidence i did not and they made their finding um i mean i I think they're definitely going to have a case for appeal and i i i know you and i've talked about that a little bit but yeah so i just um I don't know. I think a lot of times in these in these conversations, like personal responsibility is pulled out of it, and um, but at the same time, I think sometimes as an officer or a retired officer, I'm too quick to just be like, "Well, that fear is is unfounded," and and trying to like prove to someone uh, why it's unfounded. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't really know where where I was going with that, but hmm. well, that if I can go back to the marriage analogy, um, and one thing I appreciate being able to have conversations with you, hearing more and more, um, even getting an opportunity to do the, the civilian academy, um, I've had the chance. I was counting today. I've read sixteen books from the perspective of police officers, like their biographies. Here's what it was like. Um, doesn't make me a cop. Doesn't make me understand. I've been able to do a couple of ride-alongs. But I understand more now than I did five years ago. And here's the sense that I got. You can tell me if I'm wrong. The hurt and the pain and the frustration from a police officer in the United States, um, even 
before there was name calling and accusations of racism and, you know, you suck and we're going to defund you like six years ago before all that. The truth is most Americans, we don't understand your job. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. And so like, I'm, you know, I told you I'm a crier and I'm a feeler. So I'm always trying to say, what's, what's going on underneath here? Like underneath every argument, underneath on the right, there's, it's like marriage. There's a legitimate core need somewhere that's not getting met. And I thought, it's got to be frustrating where you're just, uh, especially as a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm here to protect the weak and to help people and to serve my neighbor and to uphold the laws that we all want. You know, when, when Mrs. Church and I had a car accident, Manheim Township, we didn't say we're scared of the police. We called the police and they came to help us. Right. right. So we, we want that. So it's got to be frustrating to be in a career that those of us who have no idea what you're doing have decided that we get to judge you and we get to videotape you and we get to have podcasts about you. We get to form committees where we're going to tell you how you're going to change. And then uh, we sue you and we try to get you arrested and we try to get you lose your job. That's an incredible amount of pressure for anybody. Like I couldn't work in a job like that. Like I literally can't do my job with people hounding me all the time. But if a police officer responds in any way, they're either going to get internal discipline <laughs> or depending on. So I would be very angry every day, all the time, if I were a police officer. And underneath that anger, I'd feel hurt because I'd go, come on, guys, I'm not him or him. Um, it's interesting. You said the black community says we are George Floyd. Most police officers in America said we are not Derek Chauvin. Right. Like, um, so I'll just put that out there. I was thinking about that. Like, I'm sorry that we as civilians have not done a good job entering the world of our brothers and sisters in blue. Um, it's just got to be painful. My biggest pain comes from when I don't feel understood or I don't feel heard or I don't feel valued. Like, that's when right. I get angry and hurt. And just to be in a profession where people feel like they have the right to disrespect you and it's okay. Um, that's that makes me cry because that's not that's not right that's not fair that's not loving and you are our brothers and husbands and sisters and cousins and church members and as a larger society um we have not been kind we have not been loving we have not been thoughtful and we have not treated you the way we would want to be treated in our professions as truck drivers and teachers like how would a waitress feel? She got yelled at every day. You suck. You're the worst. You can't cook. You're too slow. Here's my video to put you on YouTube and tell everybody how much you suck. She would quit. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. So I just want to say it makes total sense if, I will say you because I'm talking to you, but larger, uh, you, you called it being, um, you said maybe I'm being too clinical. No when you don't feel like you're being heard or you're being treated fairly, your defenses are going to go up. That's how I am. Right. I don't think that's clinical. I think that's self-preservation. Yeah. <laughs> because one thing I've noticed um, in our relationship, when you have felt like your viewpoint's being heard, you're very, very open and empathetic with other viewpoints. Um, and I think most human beings are like that. Um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that yeah. was... There's no, always going to be conflict if we're not kind to right. people and we don't understand them. No, I think that's, um, you know, I, pre I appreciate you, you saying that. I think, I think it is true. Like, generally right now, especially right now, 
Officers do not, they feel like they're enemy number one. Hmm. Guys, guys are, you know, I talk to guys on the, on the job and guys are completely demoralized. And what's happening is you have this drumbeat that the police are evil, that they're the bad guys. And the police are in these communities, um, some of the most violent communities mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm, our, mm-hmm. in our country. And, made up, and the police officers have made up all kinds of races, you mm-hmm, know, black, mm-hmm. Asian, uh, Spanish, um, white police officers in these areas uh, trying to serve the community and, and help the people that are trying to live in those communities mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. are engaged in doing the right thing, mm-hmm. which is the majority of these communities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you have these, these, these social justice movements and um, organizations who are, are basically saying, we need to get the police out of these areas. Mm. And the police are like, do you have any concept of what is going on in these communities? I, I, you know, I worked in Lancaster City. It's, it's no Philadelphia. It's no New York City. But the areas I worked in, mm. the, the police, it had the police not been in those areas. To me, that is one of the most racist things you can do is say, no, we need to, you guys are doing it wrong. We need to pull you out and do something completely different. Well, you have the luxury of saying that because you don't live in these areas. Mm. Majority of the time, mm-hmm. or I, what, nope. maybe I shouldn't say majority of the time, sometimes. A lot of the people that are screaming mm-hmm. the loudest right. are not living in these socioeconomic areas that yep. are you know, poor and, and steeped in crime. Now, let me support you with that. One of the interesting things about Minneapolis, where this all started, remember that was the first city council, when reporters went back a few months later, it was people who did not live in the worst neighborhoods who were saying defund. When reporters went around and talked, to, no one checked with the neighborhood residents. And right. they actually, so literally you have empirical evidence where they said, no, do we want the police to be respectful? Yes, but do we want them gone? No, we want, we want the police here. That's what the community said. So that's very interesting. That supports exactly what you're saying. Right. The people who are screaming, and they said, well, how do you feel? They said, well, no one asked me my opinion. They're out there on the press for whatever their motives. But no, to my knowledge, and I don't want to exaggerate, to my knowledge, those at least in Minneapolis who are arguing were not living in the communities that were most affected right. by you know gang violence or crime. And the people in the community said that. Right. They said, again, it's pretty consistent. We want the police to be respectful. We want them to treat our kids right, but we want them here. Right. Yeah. And that completely supports what you're saying. So you, you have a right to be frustrated when it, there's only one narrative at least not one narrative. There's one narrative that's getting the loudest and getting the most airtime. Right. And unfortunately, you know, people are like, you know, uh, you know, why aren't the police more vocal? And a lot of times they, they, they can't be. Hmm. A, lot of, a lot, you know, we were talking before we, we came on that police have the same First Amendment rights as anyone else, but they don't have a right to work for the agency they're mm-hmm. at. Mm-hmm. Uh, the courts have decided that. So a police officer, he can say whatever he wants. He has a First Amendment right. I can have a, an active police officer on here. He can say whatever he wants, but if the agency deems what he says to be detrimental mm. to that agency or not even just that agency, but the government 
entity that oversees that agency decides what they said is detrimental, they can hmm. take that take that officer out. Hmm. So, you know, you 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 hear people say, "Well, why aren't police being more vocal against the bad officers? Why aren't police being more vocal um, about this or about that?" Because they they're not going to run the risk of doing that. Their hmm. you know their their livelihoods at at times are are at stake and. I mean, we see police officers being held accountable. Every time a police officer is held accountable, it's it's top news. Mm-hmm. And if if it's something major, mm-hmm. and I can mm-hmm. tell you from experience, police officers are held accountable. Even in you know Lancaster City Police Department, mm-hmm. there were there were officers that were held accountable, officers that were let go, officers that were said, "You're either going to be let go or you need to resign." Those mm-hmm. types of things, and those those things aren't made public. It's just like any other mm-hmm. business is not mm-hmm. going to air their dirty laundry every single time they have dirty laundry to air, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. not just one, one or the other. I mean, you know, yeah. No, I like, well, I like what you said. It's multifaceted and nuanced. And when my wife and I fight, when my emotions are out, when I'm feeling hurt, disrespected, unheard, devalued, I'm in fight or flight response then. So I can't hear her side. Right. You know, it can't be logical, can't be rational. Um, even though I might try to sound like it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're learning in our 22 years when I can capture the emotion and say, oh, I feel hurt, but we're friends. We're going to get through this. Let me take five minutes and hear her out. We're getting, I'm getting better at that now than I was, you know, five years ago. The tension in race relations, specifically between blacks and whites, we haven't spent enough time as communities having that commitment and trust that you do in a, in a marriage. And so no relationship is going to be healthy if it's just, well, you did this. Right. Oh, yeah, well, you kill your people more than we do. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you know, America was founded on slavery. Oh, yeah, well, my grandparents, you know, you, no one's really, because people are hurt, right. right? Nobody, no police officer is signing up to be called a racist. Like, that's really painful. Right. That's not fair. And... um I could say from the black community side, again, understanding there's nuances because there are many communities and there are multiracial police officers, but it's, it's the hurt that keeps the communication um, from being as, as clean. And just like a marriage, it doesn't mean everybody's going to agree. It doesn't mean it's all going to get worked out in one day because you need like 50 years of time <laughs> with a commitment to keep working. We haven't really been able to do that. Um, in when it comes to this particular area, I think we're right. fine when it comes to voting and you know getting jobs. But when it comes to police, because there's such a the 200 year history of pain, it's not going to go away no matter how many congressional hearings you have, no matter how many reforms you write, because there's legitimate hurt that hasn't really been addressed on on both sides. Yeah, yeah, and and I think I think for me that's why. I enjoy conversations like this because people can get entrenched in their own mm. corners mm-hmm. um, and their own experiences. And, um, you know, as believers, we, we need to call our feelings and emotions under subject to God's mm. word. And we also need to be able to hear and empathize with other people's experiences um, so there's, there's that tension there where mm. our feelings and emotions cannot control us. Uh, but at the same time, you can't, 
deny someone's experience and just be like, well, you just need to get over it. Um, there needs to be like kind of like a meeting in the middle. So for mm-hmm. me to have a conversation with you and conversations like this that we've had over the years, it's helpful for me because it just gives me a different uh, perspective. Instead of me just getting entrenched in my corner and spouting facts and stats and everything, well, now I'm sitting across from uh, a brother who, um, you know, has a different experience than me. And I, you know, I have to listen to that. I can't just be like, well, you're an idiot. I mean, I can, but, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. there's something to be said for face-to-face interaction and the ability to have a conversation and and maybe even, you know, disagree, Mm -hmm. but also maybe even kind of see each other's sides a little bit. Um, so that's why, Mm. that's why I appreciate, uh, you sitting down with me. Let's go back. Like we, man, we, man, we dove right into it. I like it. See, this is how I like to roll. I don't like small talk too much. I don't like too much small talk. I've never been told that I'm any good at it. So, <laughs> um, but how? What caused you? I did want to ask you what caused you to get into law. Like, what made you okay. get into law? What What drove you to that? Um, three main things. One, I got a big mouth. And I remember being like eight years old and the old folks would be like, oh, he's going to be a lawyer, either that or a preacher. And I'd be like, why do you say that? And like, cause you sure can't stop talking. And I was, I'd walk away and I'd go, is that a compliment or is it an insult? It's right. a compliment or an insult. So that was sort of put in my head. Um, number two, strangely, I was always the strange eccentric kid. And I, as a middle child that you probably heard me say, I've always been sort of quirky, like, well, let me hear the other side of the story. So I remember as a child reading books about the Civil War from the South's point of view. Okay. Just, just to hear, oh, okay, I can see that. Oh, oh, I don't know. That was very weird, but I thought that's what lawyers did. I said the lawyer's job is to look at both sides of a case to try to get people to understand each other. That is literally what I thought lawyers did. Um, then had a rude awakening when I got thrown into <laughs> trial court. Um, and the third reason, I'd say it's probably genetic. Uh, my dad was very active in the civil rights movement. So he was one of the people, college students that went down south to help people vote in Georgia and Alabama. You know, some life-threatening situations he was in. Um, so you hear these stories growing up, and it makes you want to be part of, you know, doing good. And my mom, the one from Harrisburg, she went, uh, to she spent time in Latin America with the Peace Corps, um, and so f- I have that stream of like serving and helping. And so with my middle child wanting to help people resolve issues, and somehow thinking I wanted to serve, that just made me go, "Oh, this is what lawyers do. I can help people." And then when I joined the prosecutor's office and saw you know Philadelphia, the rough and tumble, brawling. There was no working out anything. So I, I was actually nervous in the beginning. Maybe I picked the wrong profession because people didn't want to get along. They wanted to fight. They wanted to win. And so I still, I still struggle with that because that is your job as a trial attorney, you know, to give a zealous, you have a duty to zealously advocate for your client. You didn't ask this, but one reason I'm not a prosecutor anymore, it just, my personality doesn't fit that. Okay. Um, so that's, uh, anyway, those are the three reasons. Big mouth. Thought lawyers helped resolve things and sort of a genetic thing that wants to serve. And I thought I could serve people by being an attorney. I could speak up for them. 
Okay. So you did that. You you said you were a prosecutor in Philadelphia for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And then you were like, I'm not cut out for this. Yeah, it was very clear. And my bosses were very kind and generous. We would talk about it. And they'd be like, you're a nice guy. We like you. But it doesn't seem that your heart's really in this. And I'd be like, no, it's not really. And they were like, okay, well, we don't want to jam you up. Um, But you should probably figure out somewhere else to go. We're not going to, you know, you can sit over here and do this. But um, my personality, again, especially in Philadelphia, that's, that's, uh, you got to be ready to, 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 make really really tough decisions about people's lives and you know i was like well let's really talk to his side it's during why he strangled her and people were like no you can't do that (laughs) so uh yeah i i would be a terrible prosecutor for that reason one thing i was good at was because i always wanted to help people i was very good with like calling the victims and trying to explain what court's like and be sensitive to what it might be like okay where i was not good was having to make the tough decisions I never rose high enough to have to make decisions about death penalty or anything like that. I was still a junior prosecutor. Um, but I remember a juvenile. I was always feeling bad. Oh, and my boss would be yelling at me, this guy's a drug dealer. And I'd go, well, he promised he wouldn't do it again. Like, literally, I remember having that conversation. <laughs> and like, church, what are you going to do with you? And I said, well, his mom was nice and his pastor was there. And, you know. So when people say, what, what made you switch? It was very simple. Uh, I needed a job. And it was clear that this job, the first job I got out of law school, wasn't working. And I actually had some connections in the public defender's office, and I had met my wife at that point, and I thought, I can't ask her to marry me if I don't have a job. So right. I've never pretended that it was, you know, God gave me a sign or anything like that. Um, the tangible reason was I needed a job. There was an opening at the public defender's office. I was actually terrified at first because, remember, my first job was all prosecution. Right. And I used to hear people yelling and screaming, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, how can you do that? Oh my gosh, these people are, oh. And I think I've told you this, I, I asked my dad as I was trying, when I got a job offer, I was like wrestling with it. Oh, is it enough money? I was like, dad, what do you think? Should I get another job? And how can people do that, defending these people? And my dad said, well, Jesus does that for you every day, and you know you're guilty. That's all he said. And I went, oh. And it was like a bulb went on. And it, that's all I needed to know. Because he knew my sinful life. And for him to say, he wasn't calling me out. He was just like, oh, this is how you can do it. Jesus does it for you. And people are absolutely guilty, but Jesus defends them. And I went. So that is the point that it became a ministry. And it got away my fears and my personality. Um, And it turned out that was a much better fit. um, Because as you know, 95 to 97% of the people charged with crimes, they did something that they were accused of, and they plead guilty. So... I love connecting with people, talking to people. People could open up. And if people can trust their lawyer, they're much more likely to make healthy decisions. If they're not feeling manipulated or pushed or bamboozled or you're trying to railroad them, they're willing to say, okay, what, what, what's the best deal you can get me? Yeah, okay, they got me with this. Okay, five years, can you get me three? People were very reasonable. Okay. Um, that's what I found. So I looked at Lancaster County stats out of 6,000 cases that came to common police court, 60 of them had jury trials. So we're resolving 99% of our cases, whether they get dismissed or they get ARD or you plead guilty or whatever, a drug court. We're only trying 1%. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Depends on the case. I will tell you who's been... uh, People may get upset, but having been on both sides... Again, overwhelmingly, 
Most of the time people are arrested, they are guilty of something. There are some people who are lying or sometimes they make mistakes. So whatever that number is, 80%, 85%, 90%, 95%, I think we'd all agree most of the time people are guilty of something. And so most people just want to get it over with and get on with their lives. I'll pay the fine, I'll take the probation, I'll do the drug treatment, whatever. Let me get out of here and go back to my life. Then you have your outliers, your real serious cases, your murders, your sexual assault, you know, serious violent crime um, that you might have legitimate issues. Um, so I think in the cases where everyone is advised clearly of their rights and does have a relationship, I think that's totally appropriate to plead guilty. Um, I don't like uh, fast food right? because the... The whole point of having a lawyer, people can do that by themselves. The whole point of having a lawyer is having a professional, just like going to a doctor, right? Someone who knows you, cares about you. Hey, if you do this, even if it's a case of weed, this can happen to your license. This can happen to your student loans. Explain that. If people understand that, then it's fine. But to just rush people, that's where pleading guilty isn't good when lawyers, defense attorneys don't do our jobs. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. So as a... So as a Christian, mm-hmm. there is no way I could ever um, have a clear conscience yep. being a defense attorney. Right. How did, how did you like, yeah, how did, how did you mesh that with your faith and, mm-hmm. and with, you know, what you believe? Mm-hmm. That was actually easy after what my dad said. Okay. It literally transformed. But I'll, I'll even, let me flip it around this way. Did um, the young lady who got charged shooting Dante Wright, uh, Michelle Potter, is that her name? Oh, Minneapolis. Yeah. We, we saw what happened on mm-hmm. video. Does she deserve an attorney? Yeah, absolutely. Does she deserve somebody who's going to examine every constitutional legal angle to present her case and then leave it up to a jury? Yes. Okay. Uh, what about Derek Chauvin? Did he deserve Mr. Nelson, who did about as good a job as you could do, you know, bringing in experts, presenting evidence, telling his story from the video and the scene before that, um, win, lose, or draw? Did he deserve that, even though some could argue everybody saw the video? Of course he's guilty. Like, did he deserve that? Like, someone to vigorously advocate for him? Yeah. So... That's where the faith comes in, because, I mean, to me, it's really simple. Jesus says, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And so, um, don't take this as a snark, because I don't think you're saying this, but um, many of my Christian friends of all different races, backgrounds, political viewpoints have asked you that question. Totally fair question. It's not offensive. But what has happened is when their kids get in trouble, they want the very best attorney. Yeah. And I remember one guy who said to me, oh, I could never, how do you do that? That same guy made an announcement at our church and said, oh, let's pray for so-and-so. His son got arrested. Let's pray the judge would be merciful. And the son was a drug dealer who was running drugs. And I went, oh. And so um, I guess what I'm hearing, you're a justice guy. Truth is very important to you. Integrity is very important. Mm Mm-hmm. So if I'm hearing correctly, the question is deeper than does someone deserve an attorney under Sixth Amendment? I don't think you're asking that. I think you're saying, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, 
if you know the truth about a situation as a Christian, and by not pleading guilty, it can appear that you're either agreeing with the client or advocating an untruth. Is, is that? Yeah, I, I actually appreciate that because as you were answering the question about does this person deserve a lawyer, I was like, okay, obviously I need to nuance that. Yeah, so yeah, the, the question would be then if you, how, like, how did you mesh your faith with uh, representing a client whom you knew to be guilty, but you're still trying to work to either find them not guilty mm-hmm. or um, get them a lesser sentence yep. or advocate on their behalf when they have done something that has been unrighteous? No, that's a very fair question. Um, um, and let me just flip that for a minute and then I'll come back to this. If just what would you say if I said, how could someone uh, go into law enforcement knowing you could kill someone else? Right? It could happen. Um, most people in law enforcement are never going to do it. I could say, how could you be a prosecutor knowing that innocent people are in jail? Um, how could you be a judge knowing that our sentencing guidelines are unfair? You know, So these are fair questions, and these are reasonable questions that I agree that Christians should consider. Let's look beyond what I'm allowed to do under the ethics of my profession, and what, as you and I have talked about, what, am, what can I do morally, personally, when I have to face a holy God? I think those are totally appropriate. So again, I'm not at all offended by it. I just... I'm I'm broadening the conversation, mm-hmm. um, and then I'll come back to specifically the lawyer. In my thousands of cases, I have had literally one case in adult court that's gone to trial where the person was 100% guilty. There were no constitutional issues. There was no, he was charged with a felony, but it was really a misdemeanor. Like there were literally no issues except he was absolutely guilty, and they had him on video and they found the clothes in his apartment, and they had a witness who was with them who was going to testify against him, and he left his uh, debit card on the counter at the Wawa or the Turkey Hill, and um, one of the detectives got his prints. That's happened once in all of my cases. That, that real case. And I went home, and I went, what do I? <laughs> I really didn't know what to do because I couldn't make up an opening statement that wasn't true. So that your question I had to wrestle with, and I was like, he won't take a deal. He said he wants to fight it. I didn't know what to do. And I went in the jury the next day, and I told the story about my wife, because that's what I do when I have nothing. <laughs> I just, I literally, <laughs> and I said to the jury, you know, nothing is, just listen closely. Everything's not always as it seems. And I sat down, and then, the detective who no longer works in our county um, committed a huge violation that he neglected to tell the district attorney about. So the case blew up in the middle of trial. And the DA did the ethical thing, and the client got a time-served sentence. And I believe the detective lost his job that day. And that's one of those cases I always tell my students and I say, is that fair? Is that just? Because this client had committed um, a series of robberies, a violent criminal who had gotten out of federal prison for committing bank robberies and now came and affected Dauphin County and Lancaster doing the same thing, had not changed. Um, 
this person would be like the worst of the worst. And it's not fair, right? It's not just, it's not right. And so you think, if God is mad at that, is God madder at the attorney who stood up to make sure it was fair or the lazy detective who bombed the case or the negligent prosecutor who refused with all that evidence? Like, that should not have happened. Who violated their Christian duty that day? That's rhetorical. I, I'm just... That's, I'm just letting you know, that's the one time I've literally had someone where there was no defense. Every other time, whether we like the person morally or not, you say, well, they're charged with these 10, but really I think there's only four. So that, I'm just saying that's how you process it. Um, I don't do a lot of, you're not going to hear me argue the philosophy, we have a flag, blah, 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 because we're talking person to person, real um, but if your question is, how can you get your mind around it morally? Most of the time, morally, I'm very, well, I'm always happy to stand up because my nature is to defend people and say, yes, she did it, Your Honor. Remember, that's 97%. Right. Please give her three years instead of five. Or you have a trial, you do the constitutional argument, um, and client still found guilty. As you know, you know, your felony goes to a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor goes to a summary, you get ARD. There's accountability, there's consequences. I made sure it was fair. I treated that person the way I want somebody to treat my son. Um, and so the question that you're asking literally just doesn't happen. The, you know they're guilty, but this, this magical wand, you're so shady and sneaky that you get them off. That might be as much of the myth as the racist cop who just wants to kill all black people. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> because, again, I know there's movies, but my life on both sides in Philly and maybe I'm just not that good a lawyer, but that, that was never my... Yeah. We, you always had something to argue, even if it was the felony to the misdemeanor. Yeah. I guess, yeah. If, I guess, if that helps at all answer yeah, the question. Yeah, no, no, it does. I, I, for me, I don't think there is any way... Like, I could advocate for someone who had broken the law, like even, right. even try to get them a better deal mm -hmm. or uh, work out a guilty plea for them where they, the, you know, charges dropped, dropped a lower level sure. or, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, okay. my personally, like, I, I, it's always been a curiosity for me because you're not the only, you know, mm -hmm. Christian uh defense lawyer i've i've come across or talked to it it's always been something i've wanted to sure to ask um no it's a fair question and we do think about it the same way as i know you and i have talked to people who want to go into law enforcement and say are you going to be prepared to take a life yeah you have to think about it yeah i think again i think there's a little bit of a difference for sure. me because someone going into law enforcement and and being okay uh morally with taking a life i don't think there's anything biblically that would say i guess there's believers out there that would say no the bible is very clear you you as a christian you can't take a life i i don't think that's what what the bible teaches it it talks about you shall not murder yeah you shall not murder that that's really what it says the the justified taking of a life i don't think there's any biblical mandate saying that that you can't do that whereas being a defense attorney if you are um defending someone who has committed a sin and you are trying to advocate on their behalf to maybe not get as harsh of a consequence or to use um 
legal leverage to get them out of mm-hmm, having mm-hmm. the consequence. That's that's I think where I would okay. Have well, absolutely. That doing that it. yeah. That that absolutely is the job. That's ninety nine percent of the job, as I said. Um, and that and that's fair. And it's okay to say mm, I couldn't do that. That's that's fine. And yeah. it, and I think it's fair to ask questions because the worst thing that happens when we ask each other is it expands our thinking, as you said. It gets us out of our whole. Um, and you say, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. Oh, I should look at that. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I don't think I have anything else to say about that. Yeah. Totally, totally fair question. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I appreciate you answering it because, you know, it's kind of a loaded question. I mean, it, it really is. Like, it's basically one believer saying to another believer, how can you be a Christian and do right. that? Sure. You know, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a loaded question. So. Well, you of all people understand it because you've been in communities where people say, well, how can you be a police officer? Right. Right. So yeah. you, I think, and so you understand that's just part of the, I have friends from certain communities here that were told that they are compromising the gospel because they're attorneys, because it's too worldly. Um, I have other friends or acquaintances who were told because they became doctors that they were chasing after the world and idolatrous. Mm. So, um, these are reasonable questions that people ask, and I think it is good for us to think through, can I do this? Do I understand what I'm doing? Can I look my kids in the eye? I think that's totally... Um, <laughs> my older son, Isaac, uh, then you can move to your next question. He, he said to me once, we were talking about what prosecutors did, and I said, he said, their job is to lock up the bad people, right? I said, mm, actually, the job is to make sure justice is done and that it, it's fair. And he goes... So your job as a defense attorney, he goes, is not to do justice and to make sure it's not fair. Like that's the way his brain thinks. And I just bust out laughing. He said, so the prosecutor's job is to do good. No, that's what he said. He said, so your job is to do bad? <laughs> Listen, he was just asking. He wanted to know, well, daddy, explain to me. Um, so if I can't answer you and I can't answer my son, then I probably shouldn't be doing it. Right. And so that's why I think it's a fair question that I don't think we should ever be offended by. Um, similar to, you know, prosecutor. Yeah, guess what? Oops, people are going to get wrongfully convicted. Sometimes people are going to get hurt or die in law enforcement. Sometimes guilty people are going to go free. That's, gonna, that, that's, just, that's just the reality. And each of us, wherever we are in the system, have to go. If there comes a point that I'm not comfortable, we should probably get another career. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, teach at a Bible college or something. I don't know. <laughs> so how, how many years were you a defense attorney then? In uh, seven in Philly and then, you know, the stint. Uh, let me think. Another seven, about 14. Okay. 14 years. And, and so what, what did kind of make you ready to move out of that and do, do something different? Um, well, I had been adjuncting on the side for several years and then... Um, so primarily, a opportunity opened up. But again, similar to Philadelphia, I'd say even here in Lancaster, it, as again, as you know, the profession that we're in, it's exhausting. It takes so much from you. Yeah. Got two young boys at home, and you know, it's it's on the weekends, and you're preparing for trial, and you're going to crime scenes, and you're on the phone, and you're on your email, and you got to start thinking, who who do I want to be long term? It definitely affects your family. And again, that stress that I left Philadelphia to get away from, I was just getting it all back right here. Right, because here, having been here longer, I was getting more and more cases. I'm getting homicide cases now, and those ripped me apart. Like even though people are pleading guilty, just this person killed that person, and I'm in court for two hours 
listening to that family grieving and screaming and all that, you know, I'm an absorber, all that yeah. pain, that wiped me out for about two weeks. Yeah. And that's a guilty plea. Right. So I realized this, this is not, because of the, my makeup, this is not long-term sustainable. Yeah. Can, I, can I do a couple DUIs? Sure. Can I do like this guy to bag of weed? But, you know, you get to be more senior attorney and I respect my friends in law enforcement that can make tough decisions and my friends who are prosecutors who make tough decisions and my friends who are defense attorneys who continue to do the death penalty cases. Uh, I'm built in such a way that for me to really be the best for my clients, I have to know what my emotional limits are so I can still zealously advocate because that's my right. job. But I, yeah, I basically was um, seeing the where it was taking me emotionally and sort of looking for um, yeah. a transition, if that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. And and then you've been with Langster Bible College for how many years then? Uh, September will be five. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, for, for full-time, I was at uh, Franklin and Marshall a year there, but yeah. five years out of the legal profession. Yeah. And, and for me, it's just been, um, you know, the opportunity you've given me to, to come in there every semester. I mean, this, this last semester I was adjunct, I was co co teaching a class with you, which was, uh, stretching and, and, uh, challenging, but fun. And before then you would bring me in every semester and, and talk to your, um, I think, was it every semester you, I would mm-hmm. talk to your ethics and criminal justice class? That was the class that you would always bring me in? Or was it different It was classes? the race class criminal justice. That was like the senior seminar. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, always, w- w- always highlight for me coming in and, and doing that and talking, talking to those kids. So we've covered a lot of ground. I could definitely, I could circle back around. I had a whole systemic racism question and I could circle right back around into that. Uh, but I feel like we, we actually uh, kind of, we got into the whole race, race issue. Um, I'm trying to decide if I, <laughs> I'm trying to decide at this point if I want to dive into it or, or not. Maybe, maybe I could just have you back on and we could talk about uh, your views on systemic racism. I don't, I don't know. Well, I can give you a simple answer today. Yeah. I learned this from my kids this semester. People have different definitions of systemic racism. I think that is one of the most valid points. It's so, very important to define. So help me just, so I, um, I mean, I have a thought on it, but tell me what you're thinking or what you're meaning so that I'm not answering something that you're not. Well, I think, so obviously I'm talking within law enforcement. There's mm-hmm. this whole idea that there's systemic um, racism in law enforcement. When I hear systemic, I mean, like, it's infiltrated, it mm. is, it's like bedrock. Mm. It's taught. It's okay. it's like coursing through okay. law enforcement. It's like it's a, mm. it's like this. It's systemic. It's okay. it's accepted. It's taught. It's okay. you know okay. It's part of the fabric, the DNA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, thank you for explaining that. That's um. See, that's once again that just by starting that, it's going to put any law enforcement officer on the defensive. Like I've literally said. Not only are you a horrible person, but your career is all horrible. It can't be redeemed. Um, everyone you associate with, everything you learn, every training, all you do deep down, it's all because you just want to dominate and oppress other people because of the color of their skin. Like, that's what I'm saying. Right. So it's, if that is what 
is the definition of systemic racism. You're never going to have a rational conversation um, because most officers I know, they take pride in their work. Like they're doing it because they're good people and they want to help. So to say, oh, everyone I've ever worked with is wrong and this new person who's telling me this, they're right. Like you're talking about 20 years, 40 years of my life. You're talking about my uncle. You're talking about my granddad. You're talking about my family. That's, that's not, that conversation's never going anywhere. So let me just start with that. Right. <laughs> Am I in the right ballpark there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a better way, so probably the question is not, is there systemic racism in law enforcement? I know that's a very popular question now, but truthfully, people have already made up their minds on it and people already picked their sides. I think a better, more appropriate question is, um, A, well, let's even get to the end of it. If we assume that there is horrible systemic racism, then as Christians, we would want to change it, right? Correct. And I would suggest, again, going back to Jesus' words, the only way you can really change, like in a marriage, if my wife says, you're so controlling and you're so selfish, that might be true. But how am I going to change that? If I say, you complain all the time, you're never grateful, might be true. So just for today, let's say, if there was systemic racism, you're not going to change it by screaming and attacking people. <laughs> you like any other relationship, in humility, you say, here's what I feel. Here's what I see. I could be wrong. Could you help me? And if this is there, what can we do together? You can't attack police, tell them they're crazy, and then try to force them to do something. You have to ask police, what do you guys think? You've been doing this longer than us. You got plenty of retired police now who can look back and go, oh, here's some things. So that's kind of a side note about getting to the end of even assuming there was, it doesn't change by screaming and hollering and, and antagonizing people. Going back to the question, is there systemic racism? I think a better question is, do we have a history? Well, I'd say how many systems do we have? We don't have one system, right? Are you talking about the U.S. Postal Service, right? The Park Police, the FBI? Okay. Are you talking about Lancaster City Police? Because that's very different than the tribal police on the Cherokee Reservation or the village officers up in Alaska. So when you say, is there systemic racism? Before you even get to racism, I'd say, which police system are you talking about? Because as you know, we have 18,000 law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. They don't all talk together every day. <laughs> right. So I think before we get to that, we have to say, do we really know what police officers do? Because before you can accuse somebody of racism, you got to know, well, what, what is their job? Then you got to say, which police department am I talking about? Again, if, if we're really serious about changing. Are you following me so far? Mm -hmm. And then I would say, like it was huge when I went to Lancaster's uh, Civilian Academy, and I thought, oh, that's how easy it is to shoot somebody. Right? So before you start saying everything's racist, every American should do a ride-along. That's it. Hmm. Every American should do a ride-along. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to walk away and say, see, I knew they were bad. <laughs> that's the worst that's going to happen. But if that's <laughs> right. what you already believed anyway, right. no harm. Mm -hmm. Most people, though, and I've seen this from community activists across the spectrum, I've seen um, they do programs like this with youth and cops, but 
it's it's entering another person's world. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. It's uh, what is the book of John says? Jesus came down and tabernacled, pitched his tent with us. Like that's how God is. He says, "I'm going to come where you are." So if we're thinking from a Christian viewpoint, again, keeping over here that the issue of systemic racism, if we're serious about tackling it, let's just pretend for a moment that that that's what it is. It's not petitions and attacks. It's if it's really there, be like God and come down and see for yourself. How are you going to do that? Get in a car and go to a neighborhood. Oh, there's more nuance. Oh, black cops get attacked too. Oh, black cops have the same use of force training that the white cops do. Oh, white cops uh, will restrain white people too. Like we just talked about that 73 year old. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe it's not racism. Maybe as a society, we want to change, you know, police training. Okay, that's a different conversation, but that would be different. But you don't, so that's my point. You don't yeah. know if it's systemic racism by looking at stats and screaming. You have to start with get in a car, go to the neighborhood, do it yourself. I, th- I, I really appreciate that, breaking that down, because I do think that it's one thing in our culture right now that we do a very poor job at, and that is defining. Mm. the word or the issue Mm -hmm. we just we just spray out these words Mm. systemic racism and we never break down Mm. and define them so i think that's very important i also think it is um you know it's a very nuanced thing there's there's a lot of facets to it and i also think there's one you know obviously this podcast aspires to promote law enforcement with a biblical worldview and and help people better understand the calling but if there's one area I'm critical of law enforcement, there's two, two areas I'm very critical of law enforcement. Leadership, because I think a lot of the leadership in law enforcement absolutely sucks. Secondly, um, I think we've historically done a very bad job at explaining to people why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And I've been guilty of this in my career, where... We don't tell you why. You just do what we tell you mm-hmm. to do. Now, there's a time and place for that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, on a felony vehicle stop, you're not going to have a kumbayamo and, and explain to the person why you're telling them to put their hands up and step out of the car and get down on their knees. You're not going to explain that in that moment. But there may be a point afterwards where you explain that. Uh, so when when the department, when Lancaster City started doing the Citizen Police Academy, um, I was not sure about it, but I actually got involved in it, and uh, I was sold hmm. the moment there was a guy in one of the classes, one of the first classes I was involved in, in helping to teach one of the tracks, um, or one of the classes. Um, I saw him later out at a restaurant, and we're talking like weeks later, and I saw him, I recognized him, but I couldn't remember hmm. how I knew him. And, um, so that's always like a weird thing for a police officer. Cause mm. you're like, did I, you know, how do I know this person? So he, he came up to me and he's like, Hey, you know, uh, Sergeant Weaver, right. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, Hey, I was, I was in the citizen police Academy. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm like, that's how I recognize you. He's like, yeah. He's like, let me tell you, I was, I was an F the police guy. Mm. That's who I was. And going through that completely changed the way I viewed the police and now I'm the guy on social media mm. that's telling all my friends that are saying F the police, hey, 
you don't know what you're talking about. You need to go. Mm-hmm. I was sold. I was like, this is definitely something I want to be involved in. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, it kind of goes, it circles back to the very beginning of our conversation. In order to have any type mm-hmm. of, you know, meet in the middle or mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or go anywhere, you mm-hmm. need to be able to have conversations mm-hmm. face-to-face and try to, 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 uh, to figure it out and, and at least gain common ground just as human beings. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I appreciate that. I know we kind of, we kind of skirted it. We didn't get far into it, but I feel like that's like a whole nother two hour conversation probably. <laughs> well, I think it's important. And I know you're familiar with this. When people ask Jesus a lot of sort of pick aside questions, I always think of the, uh, Luke 12 teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Like he wanted, somebody was right. Somebody was wrong. And he was like, let me tell you a story about greed. Like, I'm not even going to get involved in that. What's, what's the higher issue? And so I think, again, most Americans have made up their mind already, whether they're systemic right. racism or not. So we're not going to solve that tonight. But to say, well, whether there is or there isn't, would it hurt for us to understand people better? Oh, oh. And as you're doing from the police side, again, black, white, Asian, Latino, native, um, multiracial, for police to go, um, hey, I am a good person. I can't help what happened 200 years ago, but let me listen to this person's story because it might explain where some of this fear, even if it's an unwarranted fear. Okay, I, I didn't understand that that was where that came from. Okay, I'm still going to tell you, get on the ground. <laughs> but I might be more inclined to explain to you what happens now because now I know, oh, wait, from where you're coming from, you're going to view this a certain way, and then you're going to go tell your cousin, and I don't want to be the guy that makes your cousin hate me. So, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's, it's um, but again, I think we have to make it easier for the police to do that. It's very hard to be kumbaya when you're attacked all the time. Yeah. That, that's yeah. just truth. And, and, and the nature of the job, too. Sure is law enforcement. So generally speaking, you are rubbing shoulders with people who they don't, mm-hmm. they don't want to have a conversation. Right. They just want to fight with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think, you know, for those people that aren't part of that small percentage of the population mm-hmm. that are engaged in criminal activity, but who maybe are like trying to understand mm-hmm. or, or maybe don't understand and are upset with the police, mm-hmm. it becomes important for us to, you know, do a better job explaining to people why we do what we do. Um, and for those people to be a little slower to draw conclusions. That's it. I think that's fair. Um, so, all right. Some quick fire questions to, to close us out. Funniest moment you ever had in the courtroom. Uh, should I tell the story about when my pants split? Uh, no, no, that's not appropriate for a lie an audience. Um, actually that sounds like probably the funniest story. <laughs> well, really the funniest, funniest story. There's so many. I'm just trying to think the, um, the DUI case where the officer said he arrested my client. Um, this is in Philadelphia because, uh, she was flirting with him. That was his number one cue. Number two, um, he told her to do the the walk the line test and to stand on one leg. And it was the funniest case because the courtroom was packed. But I, I got his manual and I said, 
Doesn't it say here the, the walk the line test is only, this was years back, so it's been updated, but I said this stand on one leg is not helpful if the person is like overweight, and she was like 300 pounds. And so she couldn't stand still. So everybody was like cracking up. The officer's like, yeah. And I'm like, and tell me the other reason that you're drunk. Well, she was flirting. And I said, well, you're a pretty good looking guy. And the audience was laughing. He was like, yeah. So people flirt with you even when they're not drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, and the other reason was because she uh, was in her heels, so she couldn't walk straight. And she wore her heels that day. And he had her on a rocky sloped surface. Like literally, you kiss textbook not to do this. And, uh, she had like four inch heels on. And his own manual was like, these tests are totally worthless under these conditions. And it was, it was, it was funny because I didn't have to jump up and down. And it was like a very short conversation. He was just agreeing. And the judge was like, oh, not guilty. I mean, <laughs> and everyone laughed because it was done, I think. For me, it was humorous because it was not even combative. It was like, I think what happened was he was sort of annoyed at her because she was giving him a hard time. So it's like, ah, I'm just going to lock you up. But now that we were here, like somebody can lose their license and go to jail. He was honest. He didn't fight. And uh, everybody had a good laugh that day. All right. Second and final question. The best line you ever had in court? Because I feel like every lawyer, hmm. when they're growing up, they think about you know, the, just this epic statement they're going to make and the, mm. this best line they're going to make mm. to the judge or to a witness. So the best line you ever had in court to a judge, jury, or witness? Jury, young man who was pulled over, going down in the city, and the officer put on his light, let's just say it, like Lemon Street, and the kid pulled over like Walnut Street. And the officer admitted where we were, he couldn't have pulled over until Walnut Street, but he was charged with fleeing police. And so again, it was just this. And so my argument to the jury, um, and he admitted, you know, the music was playing, they didn't hear. I said, shoulda, coulda, woulda. That was my theme. I always do things in threes. And my current wife, but former, she was my fiance then, she was planning for our wedding and she was driving down you know, the expressway, and she was talking to her friend, listening to music, and she didn't see the cop behind her. And I told the jury that story. And I told them, you know, sometimes we don't pull over because we're distracted. And I said, she was about to marry me, so you can imagine how distracted she was. And the jury bust out laughing. And at that <laughs> moment, said, I knew he was going to win that case because the jury had it. <laughs> um, but that was my, my favorite line because I got to use my wife. And again, I think it was a fair outcome. Um, but I, I said, they should have, could have, would have. I said, they should have done X or they would have checked and not rushed to this. Then should have, would have, could have. I talked about what they could have done, what they should have done, what they would. And the, 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 I said, if they had just stopped and checked or asked, I said, here we are. Now we got this kid here. Um, that line seemed to resonate with the jury. Whenever you can get a jury laughing, that's a that's a good day. And that's, uh, as you recall, the case you and I had. I was talking about Benjamin Franklin and William Penn and Mother Teresa, and it just wasn't going anywhere. They were stony faced, so I knew, yeah, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, that so, guy, that guy too, in that case, just real quick, that guy was an idiot. He was a bad guy, and he was a absolute terror hmm. down in my area where I worked. And that stop. Because mm. we thought about actually charging him with a riot because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we had the stopped him. Gathered, yep. 
and he just lost his mind mm-hmm. and people started gathering and we yep. needed the whole shift out there to clear yep. the street like it was but anyways it was well you know i found out more later just from our interaction i found out later that he was a troublemaker in the community and um so it's like hindsight yeah you know i would definitely have done the case a different way but that was his classic like no i'm going to take it all the way to the supreme court type thing that's totally his style you know and 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 i learned from that you know some some cultural norms and some do's and don'ts and yeah i learned a little bit more and uh he learned a little bit more and yeah well john i really appreciate you coming on every time uh, we have a conversation. I learn a little bit more about you, and and uh, I always enjoy talking to you. And you're one of those people that I there's not very many people that I think have a level of humility that you do. Quick to just uh, slow slow to talk, quick to listen, and uh, I've always appreciated about that. You appreciated that about you, and I appreciate you coming on um, and and uh, talking to me on this episode. So oh, thank the you. Pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. John Churchville. I know I did, and I really appreciate him coming on uh, the podcast and speaking uh, to me uh, about these topics, which sometimes are uncomfortable to talk about and also heavy. After he was on the podcast, he sent me a text and kind of laid out some things that he wished he would have he would have touched on, uh, and then he felt that he missed. So I just wanted to read uh, that text that he sent to me, and, and he was okay. He gave me the approval to, to do this at the end of the episode. Uh, he said, I realized that I had ne- neglected to share two other areas of common ground we both, and I believe all of us should, share. So I wanted to send them to you. Number one, personal responsibility. One can seek greater justice in one area that needs change and simultaneously challenge a community to live right and stop breaking the law in another area. It's not an either or, but a both and. Uh, This is something on which blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians and natives and immigrants and poor and rich and urban and rural communities can and should agree. His second point was this, quote, the overwhelming majority of police and civilian interactions in the U.S. are peaceful and non-racially charged and do not require use of force and do not result in complaints or videos or shootings or killings. This fact has to be stressed more broadly, just like all pastors are not immoral or greedy, etc. He went on to say, or write in this text, I believe all Americans can agree on this fact without demonizing police, particularly because we have such gender and ethnic and culture diversity on a national level level, while also understanding that different individuals and some communities in some areas of the country will have varying experiences. We have to keep stressing this also. So I just quickly wanted to uh, speak to these two points. Well, maybe not quickly. Sometimes I get long-winded. But um, the first one to point one, I totally agree. I think anytime an agency uh, or a business or a person begins to think that there is no room for improvement uh, to them personally or to their business or to their agency, you're entering into dangerous territory filled with the pitfalls of pride and the idea that you can do no wrong and have reached perfection. The same is true in law enforcement. Those in law enforcement need to examine themselves and determine if they can be better communicators, uh, be better leaders, that sort of thing. Are they operating with character and integrity? 
Those doing the job correctly can't stand the ones that don't. Uh, I can tell you that firsthand. The ones in law enforcement that are doing the job correctly can't stand the ones that are not doing it correctly. And if you aren't doing the job correctly, and if you aren't carrying yourself with character and integrity and honesty, do your fellow officers a favor and get out. Just leave. Go do something else. Seriously, if you're acting like an idiot off duty, go do something else. If you're engaged in illegal things or doing things that are unbecoming for an officer, get out. Leave. All the good officers want you out. I guarantee it. I also appreciate Dr. Churchill's point one uh, that he made because we do need to hold people accountable and call people to take responsibility for their actions. Al, on, on his episode, Al talked about it and said how regardless of what he endured, he chose to do what he did. He made those personal decisions. He could have blamed the physical and the sexual abuse. He could have blamed his addictions. He could have blamed those that were nasty to him and treated him like dirt, but he took personal responsibility for his actions. We cannot give a pass to those who choose to do evil and break the law and then crush those that we call on to deal with those people. No, we have to place blame on the lawbreaker. I know I sound like a broken record like this, but we are not doing this. Uh, Being a victim does not give you a license to victimize, bottom line. Uh, To Dr. Churchill's point number two, I also say absolutely correct. The vast majority of police interactions end with no force being used. Everyday officers of one race are interacting with people of the same and different races, and most times these interactions end with no force being used at all. This is why I can't stand the press and certain athletes pushing this idea that the police are hunting hunting down black people and killing them and or targeting them for abuse. Uh, In an article titled The Demand for Abolition, Colin Kaepernick wrote, I saw the bodies of black people left dead in the streets. I saw them left dead in their cars. I saw them left dead in their backyards. I saw black death all around me at the hands of the police. I saw little to no accountability for police officers who had murdered them. He also wrote, the central intent of policing is to surveil, terrorize, capture, and kill marginalized populations, specifically black folks. He also then wrote in the same article, the ever-present threat of premature death at the hands, knees, chokeholds, tasers, and guns of law enforcement has only further ingrained its anti-black foundation into the institutions of policing. In order to eradicate anti-blackness, we must also abolish the police. Not defund them, but abolish them. Um, And then his final sentence, he says, the abolition of one without the other is impossible. This is absolutely and unequivocally untrue. And in this episode, I don't have the time to dismantle Kaepernick's entire article, but it's clear that he believes the police are out to terrorize and kill black people. Uh, I would like to point out that If this was true, the police are very bad at it. In 2020, 1,021 people were shot and killed by the police, and 243 of those uh, people were black. There are approximately 650,000 patrol officers in the U.S. and on the street, and for being state-sanctioned racist murderers, they really suck at it. Especially when you find out that on average, the police have 375 million contacts with the public each year, and thus prime opportunity to assassinate people of every race. I appreciate these two quotes from Dr. Churchville, and he also passed on two quotes from Martin Luther King that he felt had uh, 
bearing on our discussion. And, and I would agree with that too. So I'm going to read them also. Um, the first one is from Dr. Martin Luther King to a congregation in 1961. He says, quote, do you know that Negroes are 10% of the population of St. Louis and are responsible for 58% of its crimes? We got to face that and we've, we've got to do something about our moral standards. We know that there are many things wrong in the white world, but there are many things wrong in the black world too. We can't keep on blaming the white man. There are things we must do for ourselves. End quote. And to that, I can't speak for the crime rates in St. Louis today, um, but generally speaking, black males are responsible for the majority of homicides and robberies. Uh, black males make up about 6% of the population, yet are committing 50 to 60% of the robberies and homicides in this country. Um, this stat can't be ignored. Um, so I appreciate the quote uh, by Martin Luther King. We can't ignore the stats, uh, but we also can't ignore the experiences had by people as Dr. Churchville and I talked about. Uh, but we cannot use experiences to define truth. If we do that, then we are being driven by feeling and emotion and will quickly decide any truth is superseded by how I feel or you feel. Um, so that's, that's the importance of stats sometimes. You, I don't think you can just pour stats into the conversation uh, because behind the stats are people uh, with feelings and emotions and concerns and fears, um, just like Dr. Churchville and I talked about. But you also can't pull the stats out of those conversations. Um, you know, that it, there is a problem in this country when 6% of the population is committing 50 to 60% of the homicides and robberies. You, you can't ignore that stat. Now, that's not to say that that is because they're black. I think there's many reasons that that happens. It can be socioeconomic. It can be fatherless homes. It could be abuse. It, it, you know, there's all types of things that might be influencing that stat, but the stat itself still can't uh, be ignored. The second quote from Dr. Martin Luther King uh, that Dr. Churchill sent me uh, was made in 1967 by him, and it says, quote, when we ask Negroes to abide by the law, let us also demand that the white man abide by law in the ghettos. Day in and day out, he violates welfare laws to deprive the poor of their meager allotments. He flagrantly violates building codes and regulations. His police make a mockery of the law, and he, viol and he violates laws on equal employment and education and the provisions for civic services. Again, the context of this quote has to be considered. Uh, the world in which we live has changed quite a bit from 1967. I think we can all agree on that. But at the same time, we need to be consistently opposed to anyone breaking the law. And that includes police officers, as I discussed earlier. Listen, ultimately, I can talk about stats. I can quote people. I can um, pull out some of the ridiculous things that are being said out there. But ultimately, nothing in this world is perfect because we as sinners inhabit it. Imperfect and sinful people are never able to create or reform or correct anything to perfection. It's just not possible. To believe that you or I can uh, do that means that we are then promoting ourselves to only a place that God Almighty holds. So should we just give up then? Uh, should we no longer attempt to pursue truth and justice? Uh, there are times when I'll be honest, 
Uh, Even since starting this podcast, I feel like that. What is the point? What is the point of fighting? What is the point of trying to do anything about this? Wouldn't it just be easier to just not do anything and kind of have like a fatalistic give up attitude? There's honestly times where I feel like that. What's the point in fighting? What's the point in trying to make a difference? What does it matter? Well, if you don't know Christ, it probably doesn't really matter. You can strive all you want, but it won't matter. Because you will be striving toward and for something that holds no hope. Because you're putting hope in yourself and people and systems and reform and change. You're putting your hope in things that are not perfect. But if you are a Christian, then the Bible says this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That passage is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We have a mission and we have a purpose to glorify God and lift high the name of Jesus. So while we cannot make things perfect, we should be calling people to the one who is perfect and who will one day make all things perfect. As Christians, we should not be shying away from speaking and promoting truth, but instead, we should be the first to promote to promote it, understanding that the ultimate truth speaker, God, is the only one who can truly change hearts and move people from unrighteousness to righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you haven't been reconciled to God, Here's the message of hope for you. Jesus came to this earth fully man and fully God, being perfect in every way. He took on your sin and my sin, dying on the cross and being separated from God, but then rising from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, and is right now with God Almighty in heaven and who will one day judge the living and the dead. He can be the hope and rest you want and need. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's really that simple. He, Jesus, has kicked up the dust on your behalf. You have only to confess and believe to be saved. Lastly, for those who carry the weight of the badge and the uniform, you have my respect and admiration, especially in this day and age. Don't ever stop kicking up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreakers.